0: So last week we began a new series in the book of Genesis. Some of you may have missed it because there happened to be some kind of sporting event on. I don't know what that was about. Um, But if you did miss it and you want to get the first in the series, you can go to calvin.edu slash faith and watch the video. It's life changing. You're not gonna wanna miss it. Uh, That's a joke. Um, So feel free to go and track that out. We're looking at the story of Genesis in Joseph's life. What happens? when Joseph starts to pick up the inheritance of the patriarchy. That's all been passed down to him. So we're looking today at Genesis 37. Last week, as Tricia mentioned, we looked at uh, the dreams of greatness that Joseph had, and uh, that turned out to be a bit of a problem for the family. And we see how that problem gets carried out this week. Genesis 37, Pew Bibles, page 30 beginning to read at verse 12. Now Joseph's brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. He answered, Here I am. So Jacob said to Joseph, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron. He came to Shechem, And a man found him wandering in the fields. The man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, Joseph said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? The man said, They've gone away. For I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from a distance, and before he came near to them, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now. Let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we'll say that a wild animal has devoured him, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he delivered him out of their hands, saying, Let's not take his life. Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but lay no hand on him, that he might rescue them out of his hand later and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the long robe with sleeves that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels carrying gum, balm, and resin on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for, you know, he is our brother, our own flesh. his brothers agreed. When some many traders passed by, they drew Joseph up, lifting him out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. He returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where can I turn Then they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in blood. They had the long robe with sleeves taken to their father, and they said, This we have found. See now whether it is your son's robe or not. Jacob recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. A wild animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters sought to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted, and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father bewailed him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold Joseph in Egypt to Fataphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. This is Family is messed up I mean there is some serious Messed upness here going on in this family Wow I mean last week it was bad because you know first, first they hated him when he got the coat And then they hated him even more When they had the first dream And then they hated him even more when he had the next dream And now all that hatred has turned to murderous Rage Against their brother They see him coming in the distance and he, for some reason, thinks it's really good to go on a big field trip wearing his little special outfit. (laughs) They see him coming from a distance and they say, oh, there he is. Let's kill that dreamer and see what happens to his dreams then. Yeah, let's do that. Let's all chime in. Let's But lest we think that the problem with Joseph and his brothers has started here, The narrator of this story gives us very certain clues to say, Oh no, my friends, this problem has deep roots. Deep roots. The narrator uses certain words in this story that he uses in previous stories to tie the stories together. For example, if you look at verse 31. Then they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in blood. The language used there, the word used there for goat, is the exact same word that's used to describe what Jacob put on his arms when he went into the presence of Isaac to try and deceive him out of the blessing. So the narrator here is saying, are you paying attention? Are you getting it? Do you remember when Jacob was before his father, and he deceived him with a goat. Well, do you see what these guys are doing? Deceiving their father with a goat? Do you get it? Do you see the link? This is a big problem. This family is messed up. This family is sick. It goes back generations. And he does the same thing with this line. 32. The boys, brothers, sons come to him. This we have found. See now whether it's your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is. See now, recognize are the same in the Hebrew. And they both point back to when Isaac had Jacob standing before him and did not recognize that it was him. Look, says the narrator, this problem has deep roots. And we know that this problem has deep roots. We know that these sons have now lied to their father, as Jacob lied to his father, Isaac. Isaac lied to people and said that his wife was actually his sister, and that was a really handy lie because he learned it from his dad, Abraham, who had used it too. And so these brothers have all inherited this great tradition of lying to make things right for yourself. And envy, another great family trait woven all the way through. Ishmael and Isaac fight. Jacob and Esau fight. Everybody fights. Everybody wants what the other person has. And of course, it goes all the way back to that first set of brothers. Cain and Abel did not get along. And so by using these matching words here in the middle end of Genesis, chapter 37, the narrator, the author of the book, is saying, look all the way back, people. Go all the way back. Do you see how messed up this system is? Do you see how sick it is? Do you see how the disease of sin has gone from generation to generation to generation to generation until it ends up with these people plotting to kill their brother? And if that's not enough, he adds this little detail about what the brothers do. Verse 24. They took Joseph, they threw him into the pit. The, the verb there is really like flink, just like chuck him. Get him in the pit. The pit was empty, there was no water. Then they sat down to eat. What? <laughs> they sat down to eat. It's like, hey, you've just assaulted your little brother and thrown him into a pit. How about some hummus? (laughs) They sat down to eat. How crazy is that? And he notes it because in the Mideast, a meal is all about hospitality. A meal is all about community. A meal is all about bringing people together. Some of you have traveled over there. You've seen this in action. The times that I've been with Bedouin, they don't let you just walk through, shake their hands, keep going. They want you in the tent, sit down, eat food, drink coffee. By the way, we have to grind the beans first by hand, so it's gonna be a minute. Hospitality is so important. Eating together is so important. These brothers have become so sickened by the disease of sin that when the time comes for them to eat their meal and their brother is wailing down in the pit, crying out to be let out, which is what we'll hear about later on. He talks about this in the story. His brothers just sit and eat. They have so little regard for this, their own flesh and blood, that they're just going to sit there and and eat. Well, Joseph cries out, from the pit. The lying, the envy, the harsh way in which they deal with their brother. Isn't it such a good thing that we've come so far? I mean, wow, can you imagine if like, the progress of human history had been halted in some way and we still acted like this toward one another? If we like, still really lied that much to each other or like envied people? I mean, can you imagine what this place here would be like if you were, for example, to lie to a professor about why you missed class? I mean, can you imagine what this place would be like? Can you imagine what this place would be like if you envied somebody else because she got into the program that you wanted to get into, or he got the girl that you had your eye on? Can you imagine what this place would be like? Can you imagine what this place would be like if people were constantly trying to put themselves forward, constantly trying to take on more than was manageable just so that they could look good to everybody else? I think I'll do a triple major. I think I can do that. (laughs) Can you imagine how overworked and stressed out and exhausted we would be if we were constantly trying to grab that which was not ours and in the process we're lying to people and envying people and coveting what other people had to the point where if we saw somebody else's success, we would want to just tear it away from them? Can you imagine what this place would be like? It is a little too much like that, isn't it? It's a lot too much like that. You envy the person who has what you want. You lie to someone else to get them to do what you want. It's no surprise Because this messed up family here in Genesis 37, that's our family. Jacob is our spiritual ancestor, just as Adam and Eve are. And we trace the roots of our sin and our selfishness and the disease of sin all the way back to the curse. We talk a lot here at Calvin, maybe you've noticed, about creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Does this sound familiar? And we do a lot on this side—the the the redemption and the restoration—and we talk about being agents of renewal and going out and changing the world and be global citizens and go go go. And we forget the fact that we are created creatures who have fallen into sin. We are broken and diseased. We are sick with sin. And it comes out in our relationships and in our desires and what our hearts desire after. And we pretend too often that this is who we are, the transforming people who go out and change the world. And we forget that the only way you get to the restoration is to acknowledge that you are created and fallen and redeemed The only way you get to the end of the story is to start at the beginning of the story and remember that shortly after creation, Adam and Eve fell into sin and it affects you. It affects you every day. There's this great prayer of confession. That was first written in 1662. And it's been passed down from generation to generation because we haven't gotten any better. And a really good prayer confession is helpful. Listen to these lines. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone the things that we ought to have done and we have done the things we ought not to have done and then this line and there is no health in us there is no health in us the disease of sin has so saturated humanity that there is no health in us And we look at a story like Genesis 37 and we look at the damage in our own lives and we say, now what? Because in case you didn't notice, God does not show up here in Genesis 37. At no point do we say, and then God was with Joseph and he sent a little ministering angel down and gave him a snack, like he does to Elijah. Don't have any of that. The angel Gabriel appeared to Joseph and said, there, there, it's all going to be okay. Take a deep breath. Doesn't happen. But here's again where we look to the narrator. Because he does a little bit of a word pair. Joseph, we are told, is sent out to look for the sheep. Jacob says, hey, go go check on the sheep. See what's going on. Go check it out. Okay, he says. He puts on his little snazzy outfit. And he heads out. Now, he goes from Hebron to Shechem, which is a little like saying He's in Grand Rapids, go to Holland. Walk to Holland and go check on the sheep. So Joseph walks all the way to Holland. He's walking around, he's walking down 8th Street. He's walking around Hope College. He makes it all the way to Lakeshore. He doesn't find the sheep. I don't know how hard it is to find 10 brothers and like a thousand sheep, but he couldn't do it. They weren't there. So he's wandering around and this man comes up to him and says, "What are you seeking?" Seeking my brothers, he said, ah, says the man. I know where they went. They went to Dothan, which is a little like saying they went up to Grand Haven. So he walks again from Holland all the way up to Grand Haven and apparently right into the middle of a big hornet's nest of problems. Now, the narrator of the story does something really interesting. When it comes to the unnamed man mentioned there, he uses the same word that he uses for the unnamed man who wrestled Jacob at Peniel. A divine being, an angel, we don't know. Over here with Joseph, a divine being, an angel, we don't know. But it's a little disturbing because in this case, the divine being seems to point him right to deep pain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're in Dothan. Go find them. And he goes to Dothan, and he gets thrown into a pit. And we think, what is going on here? He's obedient to the word from the man. He ends up in the pit. But the narrator says, ah, there's more. The Ishmaelites who come and take him down to Egypt. Where are they coming from? Anybody notice this? You can cheat, you can look. Where are they coming from? Gilead, right. And they are carrying three things. What are they carrying? Gum, balm, resin. Hmm. They're coming from Gilead. They're going down to Egypt. They've got some balm. The Balm from Gilead. Huh, that sounds familiar. The Balm of Gilead was known for being amazing in its healing properties. It was famous, it was expensive. Everybody wanted to have it. The Balm of Gilead was the best. In fact, later, centuries later, Jeremiah laments the fact that there is no more bomb. Where's the bomb in Gilead? He says. You know, it's kind of Jeremiah's thing. Where's everything's all going to hell in a handbasket. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> Where's the bomb in Gilead? That's Jeremiah in a nutshell. Use that on an exam, you will get points. <laughs> so, where is the bomb? He says. Well, here's what's really interesting you got the bomb. And you have the gum and the resin. And another way to translate resin is myrrh. Now, you may know myrrh from another little story we have. And it was used for embalming. It was used for covering up the stink of death. It was used for preparing people for burial. So the Egyptians, very good at that particular skill, bought a lot of myrrh. Gum... It's another word for something that was used in cosmetics to take something that wasn't attractive and make it more attractive. Often dead people, sometimes living people who had money. So the balm of Gilead is coming down on the caravan along with these things that are used to cover over death, to make it right, to make it look better than it is. So here we have Joseph. He's been thrown into a pit. He needs to be sold at market and the odds are really good his brothers were not kind to him. The odds are really good he's beaten up. He's tired. He's got strafes from getting thrown in the pit and then getting hauled out of the pit. And these people need him to look good when they bring him to market. We're told later in the next story that he is handsome and good looking. So that's going to help them out. But they want to get the full price for this guy. So Joseph basically ends up going down to Egypt with a bunch of pharmaceutical reps who have exactly what he needs. And it seems that the narrator is trying to tell us that God has a much larger purpose in mind. When the man meets him at Shechem and says, yeah, yeah, go that way, go that way, we think, What is he doing? He's sending him right into the middle of problems, right into the middle of all the trouble, all the hatred, all the anger, the animosity, the murderous rage. What is God doing here? Sending him right into the middle of problems, right into the middle of pain, right into the middle of hurt. What is God doing here? And then the narrator, who could have told us that they were bringing down spices and pistachios and almonds, which comes up also later in the story, just says these things. They're taking down the balm of Gilead. They're taking down myrrh. They're taking down gum. They're taking down all the things that make people whole. Joseph goes down to Egypt with healing. If the man doesn't point him to Dothan, he never makes it to Egypt. If he doesn't get to Egypt, he doesn't save the Egyptians. He doesn't save his family. And there's no line of Judah, and there's no Messiah. So we trace the story back and we say, what is God doing, sending him right into the middle of this thing, this pain, this horror? And the narrator says, "Uh, just wait, just wait, wait. God's got this one. God's got this one. The challenge is that it's so hard to wait when all you know is that this guy's leading you to the pit. And it's so hard to wait when you have no idea if the healing is going to come. And some of you here tonight are very aware of your brokenness. You're very aware of your sin. You're very aware of the fact that it seems like God keeps pointing you into more pain and more sorrow. And the sickness and disease of sin seems to have completely saturated your life to the point where you have no idea what's going on and why God is choosing to act in this way. The reason that God pointed the stranger to tell Joseph where to go is because God had a larger story in mind. And not just the story about the Egyptians and... God had a larger story in mind. When that move was made, God had our story in mind. God had your story in mind and my story in mind because from the tribe of Judah comes the Messiah, comes the one who enters in, who takes on flesh. God could have put on gloves and a mask and said, I don't want nothing to do with the sin, sickness that is in this world. I want to stand far from it and just dabble with it from over here. I'm going to keep a safe distance. But from the tribe of Judah comes the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who takes on flesh, who moves in and among people. And one of the big ministries of Jesus while he is on earth is to heal. And we are also told And we also know that one of the big ministries of Jesus was to take all of our sins on himself. Peter writes, For he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be free to live in righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. It's really hard when you're in the middle of a Genesis 37 story to see that God is up to anything good at all. It's really hard when you've been thrown into the bottom of the pit and other people seem to be having a meal and you're just left all alone. It's hard to think that God is up to anything good. And that's why we need the testimony of the narrator And that's why we need Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that's why we need the promise that's held out to us in the book of Revelation. Tells us how the story ends. John writes this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, producing fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Nothing cursed will be found there anymore. God has a larger story in mind. God has your larger story in mind. God is bringing healing into our midst. Right into the middle of that meal of pain and sorrow, he brings in a caravan of healing. And right into our midst, he brings a meal of healing. A meal that reminds us that no matter what we have done, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A meal that reminds us that the disease of sin is overcome by the balm of Gilead, is overcome by the blood of Christ, is overcome so that you are free to live in righteousness. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, our God is a God who heals. Our God is a God who directs. Our God is a God who has the larger story in mind. Will you pray with me? Our God, we give you praise and thanks this day for pointing us, directing us, sending us, even into places that we don't understand, even into places of pain and sorrow, because we know that it's there that you meet us and you give us exactly what we need. So we pray tonight that as we take the bread and the cup, it will be healing for us. It will nourish us in our souls and allow us to trust in you more deeply. We thank you that through Jesus Christ, you heal the sin-sick soul. Amen.